All right, preschoolers, yeah, those going to the preschool class, you are dismissed. And everyone else, let's, let's go to God in prayer. Father God, this is your word, and we are your people. And we ask that, Lord, as we, as we preach it and teach it and as we receive it and hear it, Lord, that you would do a great work. Teach us and transform us. Stir up in us a greater love for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, church, open up your Bibles. I'd invite you to open up to Romans chapter 3. And as you're turning there, a common story that uh, you've probably heard before, we've maybe even shared uh, in some of our sermons here before, uh, was from the year of our Lord, 1519, when the Spanish explorer Cortez landed in Mexico. You guys are probably familiar with this, right? He landed with the intent to conquer the land that was before him. And in order to give his men a little extra motivation, uh, he burned the boats. Uh, he burned the boats. So that retreat was no longer an option, right? Uh, he burned the boats so that retreat was no longer an option, and his men could only move one direction, and that was forward, right? And in the last few weeks in Romans, Paul has been doing a similar thing. He's been burning the boats. He's been burning the boats. And all the things, all the things that we want to go back to and, and to rely upon for our right standing with God other than Christ, uh, he's been burning. And yeah, I don't know, Rob, just go ahead and like turn me down a little bit since the, the echoing is happening. So just, yeah, I, I can yell louder, so we're good. Thank you. Um, so all, all the things that we've been wanting to go back to, to look for our right standing with God, right? All these things we want to look to instead of Christ for our righteousness, Paul has just been knocking out these from underneath us one by one, right? He's been burning every boat that we've looked to uh, uh, stay on and set sail on other than move towards Christ. And he's doing this, right, not to be mean, not because he's, he's picking on us or anything like this, but he, he wants us to have only one real direction to move forward to seek righteousness, and that is to move to Christ. That is to run after Christ, to hold on to Christ. And so he's, he's burning all the boats, right? He's burning all the boats. Ever since the power of the gospel was proclaimed in those beautiful verses, Romans 1, 16 and 17, right? Ever since then, he's been showing us why the gospel is necessary. And he's been doing this by taking us through a prosecution of all humanity and showing us how all of us rightly deserve God's wrath and God's judgment, right? None of the boats we've gotten in can really take us where we need to go. And we learned in Romans 1 that all of us at some point, we've been in the boat of idolatry, right? We've all, as human beings, in some way or another, chosen to worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. We've been in the boat of idolatry. We then saw in Romans 2 that many of us find ourselves in the boat of religion or moralism. And we saw that this boat, it's full of people hiding from God and one another through hypocrisy, and this morning, as we look through these first few verses in Romans 3, we see Paul wrap up his prosecution of humanity. Uh, next, next week, things really do start to turn a corner, okay? Uh, but in order for us to really enjoy the heights of God's grace, we, we still have to spend another week laying the foundation in the trenches a little bit, right? In order for us to see just how good the good news really is, we have to see how bad the bad news really is. 
And so don't lose heart this week. All right, hang in with me for one more week. And next week in verse 21, things just start getting so glorious and beautiful. But you see, if you really want to get yourself ready to receive the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then God has to start burning up these boats. And oftentimes the last one to burn up in our hearts is oftentimes the boat of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. George uh, Whitfield once said, he said, Our best duties are as so many splendid sins. You must not only be made sick of your sin, but you must be sick of your righteousness. Of all your duties and performances, there must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness. It is the last idol taken out of your heart. It is the last idol taken out of your heart. It's oftentimes the last boat that needs to be burned. And Romans 3, I'm praying the Spirit works through Romans 3 to burn up that boat for us this morning. All right, so as we, as we go through Romans 3, remember at the end of chapter 2, Paul has just said that a Jew is not one who is merely one outwardly or ethnically, but instead it's a matter of the heart, right? It's those that, that have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's done surgery on their heart. Those are the people that are truly a part of the people of God. And now Paul anticipates some objections to that proclamation. And like a good teacher does, uh, he, he poses some questions in order to teach us some things, all right? So to understand these first few verses in Romans 3, he essentially asks questions in the odd number verses, 1, 3, 5, and 7, all right? So we'll go through 1, 3, 5, and 7 and see some things that uh, he teaches us through asking these questions, all right? So look at Romans 3, <clears throat> verse 1. He poses the first question that someone might ask. It says, it says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. All right, so the first question he asks is, well, if having the law and having circumcision and having God's word and being in the right family, if that doesn't get us an automatic pass into heaven, then what advantage does the Jew have? And Paul says, hey, no, there, there is great value for them. They were entrusted with the word of God. Now the problem was, the problem was they allowed this privilege of having God's word and God's law, they allowed that to cause them to be proud and to have a spirit of entitlement. It gave them a, a false sense of security that they were right with God just because they had his word. I mean, if a Gentile would have asked them, hey, if, if they believed the word of God, they would have said, believe it. We, we own it. It's ours. But no, we don't believe it. Or we don't perfectly believe it. We don't fully obey it, right? And we hate all of you who don't have it. But you see, God had given them this law. He had entrusted them with the oracles of God so that they would be a light to the nations. But instead, they ended up resenting the nations. And to be entrusted with the word of God, this was a great responsibility God had given to them. God's word was supposed to flow out through them to the world. And listen, and in many cases, it, it has, obviously, right? The early church, it has done this. But God's word, it was supposed to flow out through them to the world, but instead many of them became prideful 
because they possessed it, because they had it, and they hated those who didn't. And the same thing can happen to us Christians today. I mean, think about it. Paul has just essentially said that every human being rightly stands under the judgment of God, right? You could even make a case that it's more dangerous to be a Romans 2 person than a Romans 1 person. And so you could wrongly conclude from that thinking like, well, is there even a benefit to raise my my kids in a way that I'm teaching them to know and love the, the Lord? Right? Is there even a benefit to reading God's word to them and teaching them to read it for themselves? And Paul here says, hey, yes, absolutely. It is an an advantage for people to grow up with God's word. It absolutely is. And all of you in here, God has given us his word. And because of that, you have been greatly blessed. For it is in God's word that we most clearly start to understand who God is and who we are and our need for a savior. We also know that God attends his word with power and he can powerfully transform our hearts and minds when we hear it and receive it and believe it. And so all of us in here, and, and the kids that are in here, kids, let me, let me have your attention. Kids that are in here, hearing God's, hearing God's word is a great blessing to you. It's a great advantage for you. But this word should not make you prideful. This word should not make you resentful towards others. This word should humble you. And in having this word, you, should, you must understand that you have a great responsibility to the world around you. A few years ago, I was given a really nice snowblower for my aunt and uncle, uh, while it's not always needed, there was that one uh, large snow that we had this year, and so I got to bust it out and, and clear the driveway off, and it's a lot of fun to use. And as I'm, as I'm working on my driveway, you know, you start to see all the other neighbors come out with like these little small shovels, you know, just, you know, some of them are on crutches, right, just trying to shovel. Not trying to make me feel bad or anything, right, but... So as I'm clearing my driveway, what, what, what am I overwhelmed with? I'm overwhelmed with a sense of responsibility for all these other driveways, right? And I think that's a, that's a good and, and right feeling. And in the same way, many of the Jews, many of the religious people that Paul is writing to, they were supposed to see the gift of God's word as a great responsibility that they had to, towards their neighbors. They were supposed to see this, this snowblower, the oracles of God that they had as, as this privilege and this responsibility, but instead it became, they became prideful about it. And they looked down upon everyone else who didn't have it. And God's like, no, I, I gave it to you to, to take care of all the driveways in your street. I gave it to you to help, help those get out of the mess that sin has made. I blessed you to be a blessing to the nations. All right, and so for us, if, if you've been blessed to, to, to hold God's word in your hands, right? If you've been blessed to receive an education that, that you're able to read, I mean, that's a fairly recent blessing. I think it's about 20% of the world is still illiterate and can't read. But back in the 1800s, that, that number was reversed. It was only like 12 to 15% of people that could read, right? This is a very recent blessing and responsibility that we have to not only have God's word, but to have the ability to read. If you've been blessed to be part of our gatherings where we talk about God's word and we teach God's word, listen, this is not something to be prideful about. 
But you do have a great responsibility with this word. You do have a great responsibility to take this word and to be a blessing to our city and our world with it. And so kids, I'll I'll talk to the the kids again, all right? Uh, Some of the adults in the room didn't get God's word till later in life, right? You have been blessed to get God's word at a young age. Don't become prideful about it. Don't become self-righteous about it. But see what a great responsibility God has given you. And think about this, men, women, and children— God has chosen you to live on his planet in the year of our Lord, 2022 and beyond. Do not fantasize about living in another time period. He made us for this one. And he's given us a responsibility in this one. And he's equipped us with God's word for this time. And, and I believe with all my heart that the, that the kids in here, I believe you are going to do great things with the word of God in your hands and in your hearts. And so we have a great responsibility to teach you about your sword and how to wield it. All right? Next question he asks is in verse 3. He says, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. All right, Paul has accused God's people of not keeping the law of God, of rejecting their need of a Savior. And so one might ask, hey, what does this mean for the promises of God? Will the lack of trust of God's people destroy God's trustworthiness? That's essentially what he's asking here. A lack of, is this lack of trust in God's people going to destroy God's trustworthiness? And in verse 4, he says no in the strongest possible way in the Greek. He says, right, by no means. He means absolutely not, not in a thousand years. Now, he doesn't fully explain the answer here. We'll have to wait for chapters 9 through 11 to get a full explanation. But he does quote then from Psalm 51, where David, King David, has come to the point in his conviction over sin that he confesses that he has sinned ultimately against the Lord. And so in Psalm 51, verse 4, you'll see it up on the screen. King David says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And we can leave that up on the screen for a little bit here. But you see here, not only has King David come to a point in his life where he sees that he has sinned against the Lord, all right, which, which is a point we all need to come to, Right? This, is a, this is evidence of true conviction over sin. Many of us can feel regret over getting caught in something. Many of us can feel guilty over maybe hurting someone or ourselves over a sin or a mistake that we have made. But true conviction comes when, yes, we can see that we've maybe sinned against some people, but ultimately we feel conviction that we have sinned against a holy God. That is true conviction. 
You see that ultimately you have sinned against a holy God. So not only has David come to that point, and it's a point we all need to come to at some point in our life, but he has also come to the point where he says in that verse, he says, God is justified in his words and blameless, excuse me, blameless in his judgment. Essentially, he has come to the point where he can say, God, whatever you say and whatever you do is right. God, whatever you say and whatever you do is right. Have you come to a point in your life where you can say that? That's not always an easy thing to say and believe. There's an old hymn I've been listening to this week that's been really good for my soul. It's, it's called, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. And what a wonderful place that is to be, where you can look at God's word and you can look at God's world and you can say, God, whatever you say and whatever you do is right. You see, in our boat of self-righteousness, we want to take our definition of right and judge God by our standards, which is not how this works. If God is the only righteous one, which he'll make very clear in the next few verses, then whatever he says and whatever he does is right. And we can rest in that. Like God has a better handle on right and wrong than we do. In, in 1 Samuel 3, we won't turn there, we won't have it up on the screen, I'm just going to reference it real quick. 1 Samuel 3, Samuel shares with Eli what the Lord spoke to him concerning Eli's family's future. Essentially that God is going to kill his two sons. Eli gets this horrible news of judgment coming on his family, and what does he say? He says, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. Let him do what seems good to him. I mean, may we be able to start to say that. Let God do what seems good to him. And listen, if you can't say that, I'm concerned you're still trying to live on the boat of self-righteousness. You're still trying to live in a world where you know right and wrong better than God does. But God doesn't let his people stay there forever. He, bo he burns the boat eventually. Next question, verse 5. Paul says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just? Paul knew what it was like for people to make false assumptions about what he taught and then slander him for saying things he never said. Which is a great comfort to me and to anyone in here that would ever teach God's word or would ever speak in front of other people. 
Because we've all experienced this at some point, right? Where someone takes what we say and they assume the wrong things and then they slanderously talk about us. And, and, and he's going to address this. Paul's going to address this more in Romans chapter 6. Again, we're getting some teasers for what are, what's coming in the future. But he's saying, hey, if you think that this gospel I'm preaching you is giving you a license to sin, you're wrong and you stand condemned. Because that has never been said. But we do acknowledge the fact that if you are truly preaching the gospel, if you are rightly preaching God's grace, you will at some point be accused of this. In fact, one of my heroes in the faith, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, will have a quote of his up on the screen. He says, If your presentation of the gospel does not expose it to the charge of antinomianism, you are probably not putting it correctly. Now, antinomianism is this charge of like, if, if God is gracious, then we can just, we have a license to sin, Li, you know, live however you want, right? Which is not what God's word, it's not what we preach, but, but those that preach grace are going to get accused of this. Paul knows this personally, right? He, they're trying to slander him and say that because he's preaching this gospel of grace, that he's, he's preaching that people have a license to sin, and he's saying, no, not at, not at all. And we'll untangle that a little bit more as we come to Romans chapter 6. So right now, in this start of chapter 3, he's gone through some questions that might have come up to people as they are listening to Romans 1 and 2. And now in verse 9, he's going to put together a bundle of Old Testament passages that in the end burn the boat of our self-righteousness. All right, this is like the, the best of the Old Testament mashup playlist that he puts together. All right, he's got seven Old Testament references here, one from Ecclesiastes, five from the Psalms, one from Isaiah. He puts it all together, and we're going to see this uh, boat of self-righteousness burn up. Look at Romans 3, verse 9. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Now, if you've been paying attention, you'll notice this seems like a little bit of a contradiction because he's just asked this same question in verse 1, and he answered there, yes, there was an advantage, but here he says, no, not at all. And what he is meaning here is that it is a no, not in every respect, because both Jews and Greeks are going to be judged. Right? He's taught us there's no favoritism, there's no partiality. It's not going to be your ethnicity that gives you a right standing with God, for we are, uh, for we are all under God's judgment and God's wrath. Right? So he's saying, no, not in every way. We all will be judged by God. And then he goes on to say, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Under sin. Now, this is important, all right, because he doesn't say that Jews and Greeks and everyone sins. He doesn't say everyone commits sin, which that is a true statement. And we know from our life experience and other scriptures that that is a true thing, but that's not what he's trying to teach us right here. He says all people are under sin. Well, what, is this, what does this mean to be under sin? This word under in the original it means to be under the power the authority and the control of something or someone else to be under the power the authority and the control of something or someone else and this was our reality apart from christ's intervention in our lives we were under sin 
Sin was not just something we did. Sin was something we were under the power and the control of. Now, in Christ, we are under grace. Praise be to God, right? But apart from Christ, we are under sin. And Paul is going to go on to reiterate that sin is not just something that we do, but it is a power that we were under. So here are a few verses from later in Romans. Romans 5, verse 21. He says, uh, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life, right? Sin was something that reigned. Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Sin is not something that we, just just something that we do. It's something that we were enslaved to. Romans 6 verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Sin is something we were under. It reigned. It enslaved. It exercised dominion over us. I mean, think about it. As image bearers of God, we were supposed to exercise dominion over creation, but because we turned from God, sin has now exercised dominion over us. And it was not that way in God's original creation. And it is not that way when Christ recreates us and we're born again. But apart from Christ, we are under sin's hold. And Paul's like, hey, if you don't believe me, just look at the Old Testament. Right? I'm going to drop a bunch of Old Testament on you here. The overlying storyline of the Old Testament is not that there are some good people and some bad people and God wants us to be good. The overlying storyline of the Old Testament is that everyone is under sin, right? The righteous Noah gets off the boat and gets drunk. The man after God's own heart commits adultery and murder, right? Everyone is under sin. And he's going to drop, you know, Old Testament after Old Testament verse on us. Verse 10, he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one under sin has a right standing with God. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone is as bad as they possibly could be. I mean, God has been so merciful to humanity to restrain evil, right? Things are not as bad as they possibly could be. Don't, you know, I think something we've learned the last couple of years, don't ever say, well, it can't get worse, right? (laughs) It absolutely could, if not by the grace and mercy of God. Right? This doesn't mean that everyone is as bad as they possibly could be, but this means that sin has affected every aspect of every person's life so that no one has a right standing with God. None is righteous. No, not one. Verse 11, no one understands. Being under sin, it it has an effect on our minds, our ability to understand the truths of God. We can't understand without his help to understand. Our own reasoning and intellect will fail us apart from God intervening. No one understands. He says, no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. Is this true? No one under sin actually seeks God. 
Now we need to stop and clarify here for a moment because there are plenty of people who do seek the benefits that come from God. Right? Plenty of people can come in here and can come into churches seeking what they can get from God and His people. But no one in their own strength seeks God unless God has already sought them. In John 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so the question for you today is, are you truly seeking God? Or are you sinfully seeking the things you can get from God? Right? I mean, some of us, we, we are maybe here just merely seeking a, a clear conscience. Maybe we're here to merely seek a friendship and a place to belong. Maybe we're here merely seeking a good food at the church uh, pitch-ins and lunches. Maybe we're here seeking a, a sense of moral superiority that sometimes comes with being a part of a religious group. And listen, if that's you, some of those things, right, some of those things are not necessarily wrong, and we pray that friendships do come about here, and we, we pray that, that, that those good things and secondary things do come. But anyone in their own strength can seek after some of those things. But are you actually seeking after God himself? Like, is the thing you are most looking forward to in heaven and in the eternal state, is it the fact that Jesus is going to be there? Or, or would heaven still be heaven even if he wasn't there? Now, Listen, if you are seeking him, if you are truly seeking him, praise God. And this should be a great encouragement to you that he is doing something supernatural in your heart. Because under sin, no one seeks God. No one truly seeks God under sin. Verse 12, he says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now we want to object to this, right? Because I know many of us, we can think of plenty of non-Christians who we view as good people, right? You probably know plenty of people that you would say, you know, they're not followers of Jesus, but they're good people. They give to charity. They serve their neighbors. They volunteer their time. Like, how can God say that no one does good? But you see, apart from Christ and under sin, even our good works are not done for the glory of God, first of all, and are not done by faith in God, secondly. Right? The life lived on the boat of self-righteousness, it looks good, but all the good things are not done for the glory of God, and they are not done by faith in God. And Paul will teach us later in Romans 14 that anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. And God knows if what we have done is for the glory of man or for the glory of God. And so he can say, under sin, no one does good because the best kind of good human beings are capable of is ultimately for the glory of man. And this was one of the main points Jesus was teaching the rich ruler in Luke 18. 
In Luke 18, verse 18, it says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? Right? He's trying to, trying to diagnose the heart here. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This is what Jesus says. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So he's trying to get to an understanding of his heart, right? Because like either you're calling me good because you believe I'm God, or you're calling me good because your view of good is kind of messed up, right? Either you're calling me good because you believe I am God, or you are calling me good because you think I'm good just like you are good. Like you're this good guy asking this good teacher a good question. You think you've done a good job keeping the, these good commandments. But you haven't. No one is good except God alone. And so for you, why do you call Jesus good? Why is he good? Is it because he's met your standard of goodness? And when he fails to do that, then you might be done with him. Maybe he's not good. Plenty of people are like that, right? And when things get tough, when persecution comes, when things happen in the world that doesn't make sense to them, start to question, is God even good? He's not meeting my definition of good. Why do you call Jesus good? Is it because he's met that standard you have set for goodness? Or is it because you've seen that all of humanity, including yourself, is under sin and only he can rescue you from that? That's why we call him good. The rich ruler would not lay down the riches of his righteousness and goodness to receive true righteousness and goodness that comes from Christ alone. And I don't want that for any one of you in here to be unwilling to lay down your goodness and righteousness so that you might receive the true stuff, the good stuff, the real stuff from Christ alone. No one does good. And then Paul, he's going to give some specific examples. Like if you really don't believe me, he's going to keep going. All right. He says in these next couple of verses, everyone sins with their words. Look at verse 13. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Right? Everyone has sinned with their words, right? I mean, this is, this is a really tough one to argue against. And Jesus, what did he teach about our words? He, he taught that it wasn't necessarily our sinful words that made us sinners. No, he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We might not all be able to see each, someone's heart like God can, but you can start to see it when they start talking, can't you? And we all are prone to speak words that, that want to boast in ourselves that gossip and slander and put down others, that tell lies and half-truths in an attempt to deceive one another for our own benefit. Church, apart from Christ, we are under sin, and our words affirm that state of our hearts. 
verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Listen, apart from Christ, we are under sin, and those who are under sin are swift to shed blood. World leaders who make war are not the exception. They are the rule. There is hatred in the heart of mankind, and if given an opportunity to act upon it, we will. Historians say that in the last 3,400 years of recorded history in the world, all but 260 have been years with war somewhere in the world. War has been the normal part of humanity living under sin. And so when news of war comes to us, this is not necessarily a sign of things getting out of control or that God's promises are failing or that Christ's kingdom is not advancing on earth. But when news of war comes to us, we are reminded that sin still exists. And those that are under sin still need to be freed by Christ. The gospel still needs to go forth and be proclaimed so that we would no longer be under its dominion and control and power and authority, but that we'd be under Christ and under grace. And that is where true life is found. And so you see, those who are under sin will be quick to pursue exalting ourselves, even if that means hurting others. And ultimately, Paul sums all these verses up in verse 18. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Which we've talked about recently in Proverbs, right? No fear of God meaning there's no reverence of God, there's no awareness of God, and there's no dependence upon God. That's a healthy view of the fear of God, a a reverence for God, an awareness of God in every situation, in every part of your life, and a dependence upon God. He then goes on to say, And we'll close with these couple verses. Verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All right? And Paul has now come to the end of his prosecution, and he states that every human being in the entire world will be held accountable to God who alone is the righteous one. And what should that produce in us? What should that truth produce in us? He says it in verse 19. It should produce in us silence. We should close our mouths. God's law and God's word should produce in us standing before God in judgment a silence because there's nothing we can argue or defend when the state of our hearts is clearly laid bare before God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he once wrote this as well. He says, you do not begin to be a Christian until your mouth is shut, is stopped, and you are speechless and have nothing to say. You put up your arguments and produce all your righteousness. Then the law speaks, and it all withers to nothing, becomes filthy rags and dung, and you have nothing to say. Let 
I mean, isn't this what Paul has done in these first three chapters of Romans? He's burned up everything that human beings go to other than Christ for a rightness with God. He's like, oh, you thought being in the right family made you right with God? Nope. You thought possessing the word of God made you right with God? No. You thought being in the right church made you right with God? No. You thought your good works, you thought your baptism, you thought all these things made you right with God? No. But again, Paul is not being mean or cruel to us. No, he is graciously burning the boats so that we would only have one direction to run for righteousness, and that is to Christ. The boat of self-righteousness is a sinking ship. You see, for, for, for church kids and church people, right? I grew up a church kid, right? For us, sometimes we need to confess and repent of not just the sins that are obvious to others, but we oftentimes need to repent of the good things we've done with the wrong unrighteous motivation. And I would say as a, as a church kid, as a, from the world standpoint, a pretty good kid growing up, this was, this was a part of my discipleship that, that really started to transform and turn things for me to realize that not only did I need to confess of kind of the obviously bad, rebellious, sinful things, but I also needed to con confess and repent of my self-righteousness the good things that I had done for my glory, for my reputation, that were done not by faith in God, but they were done by faith in my power, in my abilities. And God had to just start putting me in more and more situations and exposing more and more sin so that things would be done for His glory and not for mine, and things would be done and I'd have to rely on His strength and not my own. And so church, I want to invite all of us to confess and repent of our self-righteousness today. I know many of you know you need to confess and repent of some of these obviously rebellious bad things, but some of us need to confess and repent of our, of our good works today. These good things that we've done wrongly motivated. And so let's give over to the Lord the good things that we have done for our glory. Let's give over to the Lord the good things we have done with no faith in God in those things. And let's ask the Spirit to burn the boats so that we might run to Christ and receive a righteousness only He can give. And we'll start getting into that more next week in verse 21. Church, all He does is right. All He does is right. Let's pray.